Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 321 Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with members of the O'Neill & Associates team talking about their experience on presidential campaigns and politics. And in two minutes with Tom, we are talking Brexit. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, it's America Saves Week and boy do we need it. The Federal Reserve reports that 4 in 10 Americans, if faced with an emergency expense of just $400, would have to sell something or borrow money to cover it. Why is it so hard to put money away for retirement, college, and everyday emergencies? We'll discuss this persistent household problem and share our favorite money and budgeting hacks. And we revisit the decline of traditional American journalism jobs from a different perspective. Other jobs and professions that use journalist and media skills without quite being classified as actual journalism. A report from LinkedIn suggests this shrinking professional category of reporters, editors, producers, and other content creators may simply be transitioning to different organizations and companies. And finally, our own Ben Josephson joins me in studio to talk a little bit about Michael Cohen and his testimony this week. All right, Kyan, the noted personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary writes this week, Americans are saving so little money that there needs to be an annual week-long campaign to remind them to put money away. Uh, it's true, though, the savings rate nationwide is really abysmal. In fact, in f- if faced, as we said in the opening, um, 40% of Americans, of adults, if they had an unexpected expense of $400 come up, not nothing, not nothing, but not a not huge yeah. expense. Unexpected, they'd have to sell something that's or borrow the money to handle it. That, that's, that's, a, that's crisis level. That's crisis level. Savings rate is now down, I think, below 6% nationwide, the lowest uh, since the 2008 financial crisis. Um, it's part of a 60-year downward trend in the personal savings rate, uh, according to the Bureau of Ec- Economic Analysis, meaning the percentage of your income that you are saving, right, yep. that you're putting away. Um, and there's different categories of saving. There's college savings. There is what you could debate about, uh, the, the value of even doing that. There's retirement savings, which really is important, so you're not eating uh, pet food in your uh, golden years. Um, and then and then there's simply... Um, Th- then there's day to day. <laughs> you hit those golden years. You're eating pet food. You're feeding. <laughs> you're, you're feeding real food to the pigeons. It's an ugly picture. Anyways, um, and then there's just having money set aside for emergencies. There's all kinds yep. of metrics. You should have X number of months, three months, six months, a year's worth of expenses. I don't have that. You definitely should. <laughs> you know what? You ought to have four hundred bucks somewhere, though, right? I mean, you got to have four hundred bucks somewhere. So. Number one, are you surprised? I, I'm going to just jump uh, jump ahead and say I'm not, um, but I don't know what the solution is. Um, and also, let's just talk about how, how we we as as households, as households with families, how, how we're trying to stay not get ahead, stay ahead. Yeah, you know, stay ahead of the bill collector. 
Question, does that mean that they don't even, not that credit cards are the answer, but like they don't even have room on a credit card somewhere? No, no, no. It, it, mean, that, it, mean, it absolutely means, it mean, so when you're selling or borrowing, you mm-hmm. buy something with a credit card, you're borrowing, right? Yep. So yes, it means okay. you're using a credit card. Gotcha. Um, yeah, if, if you're, so if you're maxed out, I've been there too. If you're maxed up on the credit cards yeah. and you have no money, in fact, an important measure. And financial- if it's like if it's a rough week, like maybe it's the f- first of the month, like your mortgage payment hits and all your bills come through, and then yeah. all of a sudden your car breaks down. Yeah, I'm not surprised that there's forty percent. I'm actually surprised there's not more. No, that don't have four hundred dollars lying around. I think a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and, and and we're not talking about people who are like. On the edge of homelessness. You talk, no. Paycheck to paycheck could be... With I've very got, good paying jobs. Yes. I've got a mortgage. I've got a home. I've got this and that. But I just can't stash away enough money. I think the cost of living is expensive. That's obviously a huge part of it. Generally speaking, everything's more expensive. People like more expensive things. You know, whatever the experience is, you know, people are traveling, whatever it is, everything yeah. costs more than it used to. And I don't, I, I don't know that people are just... Like framing their lives around that idea. Like there are some people that are just they live day to day. Yeah, I'm not sure it's helped me much over the people over eat my out lifetime. more. Brooke over here eats out all the time. Yeah. Our well, producer that, Brooke. Well, that's, that'll kill uh, you. You know, uh, Dave Ramsey, famous uh, personal finance uh, radio star. First thing he says, do not look at, do not, fi- do not enter a restaurant unless you're going in there to work because that's the first <laughs> thing you should do. Is cut out all restaurant, uh, all restaurant meals. Eating out, I would say, is probably the number one culprit for so many people. All right, it's America Saves Week. Um, that's good. Save money. All right, Kyan, we talk, we talk um, periodically about sort of the fate of American journalism and what's happening with. Um, local journal- journalism and the profession and all that stuff. And um, LinkedIn has a report out that suggests, or, or really doesn't suggest, it, it tracks a trend that I think we're very aware of. In fact, we're living it right here at O'Neill & Associates. Traditional journalism-type jobs, reporters and editors and producers and photographers and video people and social media people now on content, all those things that go into producing journalism are being used in the same ways uh, at organizations that are not news or journalist organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't really sound like it may, it, it's a big difference, but but it, but I think it is, especially if you're someone like me who comes from originally a background in the news business. You're one of the, you are the statistic. Yeah, having transitioned <laughs> over. Yeah. This, look, OA on air, this feels like journalism. It's not, it's right? It's not. It's not. It's it, commentary. It, it, it's commentary, it's content, but even, no, even, even commentary can be journalism, but true journalism is independent of outside influence and you know what a podcast and a pr and in the uh, public affairs firm is not because there are things that we might not do or say because we're not independent yes. completely and that's that's part of what's happening that's the dynamic of how uh, these skills are being used elsewhere in the marketplace i'm going to tell you why that's a problem the problem is that to your everyday consumer of information they may not know the difference. And that's where we start to get into an area of murkiness, of quote-unquote fake news, when people are out there producing information, producing content, and they are not journalists, but it is being treated that way. That's dangerous. It's a really good point. I, 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 I say that because 
Free speech and the ability for anyone to distribute content is an important right that needs to be preserved. The onus then goes on the news organizations, the real traditional ones, to make sure their brands are very clear, to make sure that they make it clear that what you're getting from this news organization is independent uh, reporting and news and analysis, as opposed to, and I'm not talking about fake news even, I'm talking about things like brand journalism, when a hospital creates a whole uh, set of uh, news-like content that that is designed to further the goals of the hospital, hospital, to, 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 to promote the hospital. That's terrific and important content and informative. It's not journalism because it's not independent. Um, and it doesn't mean it's fake news. I also don't think that they need to to disclose, hey, we're not journalists here. No, you don't. But if you're running a news organization that you want to be seen as independent, you know, unaffiliated, um, uninfluenced, then you really need, in this day and age, to make that very clear and be very strong about it. I would agree. I, I It's... Uh Journalism is important. It's important to us. Obviously, we it's work in it every day. But it's important to democracy. It's essential. And we, in going forward, preserving it and making sure it has the space it needs to flourish and succeed is absolutely essential. Last word on this. The good news for people, for young people in college and elsewhere, and also just people in the profession or in, uh, you know, who, are, who are thinking and writing and creating, there are many, many opportunities that are that are that are uh, dispersing themselves elsewhere throughout the economy using those skills, and that's the point of this LinkedIn report. All right, thanks, Cayenne. Hi, Ben. How are you, Cayenne? Good to be back. Good. Thanks for joining us for Three, Two, One, Go this week. Um, we had an interesting week in Washington D.C. Michael Cohen testimony. Kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. He did seven plus hours in the in public, another two days behind closed doors. And really, I think one of the bigger questions going around is, what was the point of all of this? Like, why? He didn't have to do it. Um, and he's already lied to, to Congress. So there's a lot of questions around, why do we believe him now? This is true. And one of the more interesting things is his attorney, Lanny Davis... CNN described as, quote, the person who choreographed the Michael Cohen testimony. Um, Politico described him as a Democratic strategist and attorney with close connections to Bill and Hillary. And he was special counsel to former President Bill Clinton. It's a little suspect and interesting. Maybe not suspect isn't the right word, but it's an interesting twist. No, I agree with that. And I don't think it's suspect. And I think that this is this is Lanny Davis's bread and butter. Um, I, and you're right. It was a long day of testimony. There were a lot of fireworks, a lot of discussion about uh, the back and forth between Mark Meadows and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's questioning of uh, Michael Cohen, which was thought to be uh, very effective despite the lack of, of bravado or fireworks. But I, I did want to focus on one specific thing that came at the very end of a very long day. And I don't think it, it really got a lot of attention. I think it maybe does speak a little bit to your point about Lanny Davis, I thought it was a very curious choice of Michael Cohen's to have a closing statement that was fundamentally a political rebuke of the policies of President Trump, from the shutdown to the criticism during the campaign of Gold Star Families, to the president's attacks on the media, to the family separation policy. And why do I think that's interesting? Michael Cohen is presenting himself to the committee as 
fundamentally a non-political actor, right? He's a, he's a part of the Trump organization. He's a legal, has insight in the legal financial parts of the Trump organization and to some small degree, the campaign, but, but fundamentally non-political. In fact, if anything, I think he did a little stint as deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee. So you sort of have to ask yourself, who was his audience for making what was really a political speech at the end of the testimony? Democrats and others who already sympathized with this testimony would have liked everything he had to say. He's not, he's not necessarily winning friends there. And, and even more curious, because he came into the testimony with a credibility gap among Republicans, to say the very least. And they really spent almost the entire part of their questioning, questioning Cohen's credibility, which is not you, just Republicans. I mean, he's got a credibility problem. That's fair. Across and the board. It, right. And I think I think that's that speaks to my point, which is when you come into this with a bit of a credibility problem, if you choose to close your testimony with a with a political message directly to the president, directly to the president, doesn't that actually serve to undercut to some degree everything you had to say previous, which was meant to be sort of non-ideological, non-political. Here's what I saw inside the Trump organization. I'm, quote, just trying to finally do the right thing. And, and yeah. Exactly. And so now if Michael Cohen is sort of out as this political actor, you know, did, I, I think that served to, to undercut what he had to say earlier in the day. Not devastatingly so, but, but it was a curious choice, which all comes back to what you said at the outset, which is Lanny Davis, who is a... Uh, partisan Democrat, which nothing wrong with that, but nope. but I feel like his fingerprints are on that closing testimony because I don't know where that comes from otherwise, and it doesn't seem to be Michael Cohen's sweet spot with respect to you know sort of what he knows and what he had to say. So the big question out there remains, like why the why, which I don't know that we know the answer to yet. I don't. I think maybe just uh, again, I think this is this this speaks to the fact that. Uh, Michael Cohen had a had a stage here, and there were folks inside his circle, Lanny Davis or others, who had something to say. And you know, you can agree or disagree with with those statements, but it it was a curious departure from the from the motivation of the testimony, and and that's why I thought to focus on it. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him in the future. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Cayenne. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Three, Two, One, Go. Our program is recorded live in Studio One Hundred A right off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macera. That's it for 321GO. Up next, an interview with some of our own OA team members talking about their work on past presidential campaigns. Hi, it's Hugh Drummond. And I am joined here today by some presidential campaign uh, ex-staffers, Ben Josephson, Andy Pavin, and Jen Crouchen. And what we want to talk about is what it's like to be on a presidential campaign, especially in the early days. Right now we have, it's a year before the Iowa caucuses, and there are nearly 20 Democrats running for president. And... um, it's very different to see a campaign in its nascent stages, nascent days of the campaign versus what you see towards the end when it's a full motorcade of Secret Service and, and, and staff and, and so forth. Um, 
I worked for Bill Bradley in 2000, and 1999, we did our first trips to uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, and I'll never forget them. Um, let's start first, though, by talking with Ben, because money is what makes it all happen in the beginning. Sure. And thanks, Hugh. And, and I think it's just fascinating to see, particularly this uh, presidential campaign cycle, the continuation of, uh, of an evolution on how money is prioritized that's really been going on for, for about 20 or so years. Uh, you know, for a very, very long time, there was a real prioritization of the campaigns to secure what would be considered sort of high-level bundlers, people that would be able to give the federal maximum to the campaign, usually, uh, I think right now, $2,800, but, you know, that number has changed over the years. And there's just been a real shift away from that priority exclusively, probably starting in 2004 when Howard Dean was the first candidate that really figured out a way to raise money online, which wasn't even a, a capability hardly before that. Uh, but certainly when Dean began that process of raising money online, there was a marked shift uh, towards smaller dollar donors, which we now see in the early stage of this campaign, certain candidates, even Elizabeth Warren this week, even sort of forswearing the idea of, of a big prioritization of the larger dollar donors. Uh, and so that segment of the population, that segment of the donor base is, is receding a, a bit in terms of importance. And certainly ascending is the ability of these candidates to raise small dollars online. And that has a huge impact for candidate scheduling, uh, the way that they spend their time or now don't spend their time uh, on the phone, uh, in meetings, at fundraisers, uh, courting large donors. So it's it's just been a real, uh, it's been a real shift. President Obama sort of successfully managed both camps very well and, and raised an extraordinary amount of money in 2008 successfully uh, recording both large donors and small. Uh, but we're really seeing this cycle, uh, you know, certain candidates that are moving away from the large dollar donations almost entirely. Bernie Sanders had a, had a very successful fundraising launch almost exclusively online in his first several days of announcing his candidacy. So, you know, I think the, I think the money conversation is very, very different um, than it was even four years ago. Uh, and I'll just be continuing to watch to see how, how different candidates manage their need to raise money. Yeah, it's very interesting. Jen, let me, let me go to Jen real quick because you were on the ground in Iowa. And yes. I, Iowa is it, – it's, it's always a fascinating thing to think about how, how influential Iowa is every presidential year. Talk about you're deployed to a county. Take it. Sure, sure. So I um, I had been with the campaign for a few months at that point. And just to remind everyone, it was John Kerry, January you know, 2014. It didn't look good. So I kind of thought, let's take this opportunity to go to Iowa to you know, finish on a high note with my, my candidate, the person I was backing and supporting. And there was no chance that we were ever um, going to win. So I um, hopped on a bus with about 35 strangers, 30 of them, which were Vietnam veterans, supporters of John Kerry. And uh, we took a bus ride <laughs> from Boston 
the veterans dropped us off in Iowa City about 36 hours, 40 hours later. Uh, we were known from there on out as the Dirty 30. Um, we stayed, the students and I stayed in Iowa City. The veterans continued on to Des Moines. And we had a small pop-up shop, I guess now you would call it, um, in the mall locally where people would come in, get pickup signs, pick up packets to leave folks. Um, work on making phone calls, um, et cetera. So we were there for a few days ahead of the actual caucuses. Uh, that night of the caucuses, I was given a rental car. And I had only at that point had a cell phone, a personal cell phone for four years. So it was a token phone. I, I was printed out MapQuest directions and was partnered up with a person who I just met. We headed out about an hour outside um, Iowa City to essentially it was just fields of cow fields, I guess, or who knows, corn fields and a church popped up and our caucus location was in the basement of a church. And it was actually such a small, but fairly typical location where there was three different caucuses meeting that night. So you kind of set up in your corner, you put your town carry for president posters up, you have your packets of information about him. You talk to people, try to answer their questions and convince them to come and stand with you in this corner. And um, based on how the numbers work out, you do it again, pick up a couple more um, supporters, and eventually uh, the numbers work out. And you turned out that we won two of our three locations, which was pretty great. Uh, as I'm driving back, I had to call in the results to headquarters, and headquarters for John Kerry actually was in Washington, D.C. It wasn't in Boston, so I had to call this hotline number, spoke to a staffer there, and they took down uh, my staff and my information as to my caucus locations and, and the numbers we had there, and I said, just, you know, how's it looking? And the person says, I think we're going to win, and it was really shocking. If you recall, Howard Dean was really the candidate of choice then. And that was the moment that, you know, John Kerry had to come back kid. You know, we won and we really won. And it was just truly a huge upset and an awesome time to come back. And certainly after that, it was a little bit easier to raise money and get people to come and volunteer for you. Andy, it's uh, you and I were, uh, well, you predate me a little bit on the campaign trail, but uh, we had, uh, we didn't have the benefits of technology that they do today. And, you know, in a way that the work was really hard. Um, you had to kind of, I mean, we, we still have duct tape today and things like that that you, you go by, but the smartphones and all of that. Talk a, bit, a little bit about your experience uh, in, the, uh, in the 80s, right? 80s, 90s. Yeah, I did a little bit of volunteer work for uh, the Mondale campaign in 1984, actually, and then was uh, on board very early. Uh, for Governor Dukakis in 1988. At the time, I was working uh, in state government for him. Um, I, I, advance back then, because you were not connected to the national headquarters, you weren't tethered by any sort of electronic device. You had to go find pay phones to use to call in, to check in um, with headquarters. And, you know, one thing I remember about the Midwest is they had drive-up phone booths, which is something that you don't have if you grow up in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, and as a result, the advance work was, I guess, I guess one way to say it is that it was much more entrepreneurial. You really had to figure it out for yourself. It wasn't until many cycles later that routinely photographs are sent back and forth between the advance team and headquarters. And essentially, the headquarters designs 
what every event looks like. Um, and that was not the case in 84 and 88 and 1992. I can't speak to 96. I was working in the federal government and did not leave uh, to go back on the campaign. The, um, you know, I go back to Iowa. You talk about headquarters and, and so forth. I was in, in 99, 2000, I was the head of scheduling for, for the Bill Bradley for president campaign. And, and so I relied on the field staff, the advanced staff to call in from every stop to, to call in as they were planning events. We would have concepts and they would you know, find locations. We would review the locations, see what would work. The, uh, but you were wh- blind. <laughs> but you were blind. I was blind. Right. That's I right. played that role in 92 yeah. once, I, once Songus got out of the race and I was in Little yeah. Rock. Yeah. And, um, you know, what was interesting was also the um, – you hear about candidates going into these early states and having to have these very personal, intimate interactions with, with voters. It happens on the staff side too. For instance, I was a headquarters-based staffer. I had to charter a plane in Iowa to go from two cities, and I forget which ones at this point, but call up a charter operator at one small Iowa airport, and I say, hey, this is Hugh from the Bill Bradley President campaign. I want to charter a plane. And he stops me. He says, friend, 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 let's get to know each other first. Let's let's talk for a little bit. And it was classic Iowa. And it was beautiful. And I'll never forget it. Uh, one of the early memories I have of Iowa is that I was 27 years old. I was on the road generally by myself, right? It was early. It wasn't like you had a team of advanced people. And people were really nice to me. And I was really suspicious of that. I didn't trust them. It took me a while to figure out that it was you know, Minnesota nice is the phrase, but Minnesota and Iowa share many traits. The people of those states share many traits. And it really was. People would invite me home to dinner and things like that, and I kind of... We, yeah. um, we actually, you know, say so we get there, and we, we, they didn't have room for us at the college dorms, which sometimes they do. So we literally, at the end of our first day in Iowa, were just split up amongst the group that I came with, to host families, then we essentially went home and slept on the couch of yeah. these volunteers. That's why I always did you know, advance and have, not field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't have much, and but they would offer their home up to you, and they would want to hear about you know how things were going in Boston and what were you hearing, and it was really I, I genuinely will always remember how. Uh, everyone was so kind, literally opening up their homes to us and, you know, yeah. making meals or sending us off for the lunch or something like that. It was really very touching. I, I, I do want to go back, though. I do want to go back to one thing just really quickly on the on the small donors. Um, Governor Dean clearly broke the mold. But but what I remember, uh, the first the first candidate really to take advantage, not of the Internet, but of small donor um, participation was actually Governor Jerry Brown. And in 1992, at every appearance that he had, whether public or on television, and in one memorable one, if you're at home and searching for it, it's easy to find, you'll find a clip of Tom Brokaw getting very angry with Governor Brown at a candidate's debate because Governor Brown insisted on repeating his 800 number. And, you know, we could take a poll of those of us in the podcast. I think we all know the average contribution given to Governor Dean, because he repeated it ad nauseum. But in fact, Jerry Brown um, was very successful. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting if you go back and look at it, because you find a lot of entrenched 
Washington operatives who were extraordinarily dismissive of the concept. Yeah, no, that's and that's fair, and and certainly, you know, Howard Dean didn't invent the concept of, Dean, of Dean, small dollar fundraising. Yeah, Dean just, put it on steroids. Yeah, I mean, just the the scalability. I mean, of you know, say the very obvious, the scalability that was that was created with the ability to fundraise online. And I would also say that the 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 flip side of that is if you talk to folks that are responsible on the spending side, the differentiation between traditional television ads. And what you can achieve with a digital strategy uh, is, is substantially different from a from a cost perspective. So now you have a candidacy that, on the one hand, may be more reliant on small dollars and more reliant on a digital strategy, whereas even two or three or four cycles ago, that same candidate would have been heavily reliant on large dollars and and in part out of necessity to be able to fund a, a largely television-based advertising campaign. Yeah, yeah. So, and, go- I, I, and Governor Dean wrote the book on that, clearly. Sure. On, use, on using the internet. So this year we have so many Democrats in the race right now that span a whole kind of ideology of, uh, uh, from centrist to, to uh, very progressive. And, um, you know, we're in these early months. What, uh, what kinds of things would you think they should be doing? Are they doing the right kinds of events right now? I know in my experience, we would often do a very, like a, a closed type of event with, with the candidate to, to meet real people before we did a public event. Uh, we certainly didn't have the same kind of uh, broadcast ability that social media gives the candidates today. And we also have early voting. Yeah, what I don't know, because I have not been on the road since, well, pre-iPhone days, um, is the degree to which in the early phase candidates really do get the chance to talk to real voters. I mean, there are a million things wrong with the way we run presidential elections in this country. Um, But one thing that – there are a couple things that I always thought worked. One was that the early states provided – a lot of opportunity for direct contact. Uh, candidates could really hear what people thought and what they cared about. Um, and that the the rigor of the campaign and the length of the campaign generally worked to winnow out candidates that might not be well um, suited for the presidency. And as I speak those words, I think about current day and how that seems to have been turned on its head by our current president. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Um do you think uh, campaign staffers today, ba- back in the day, they would play tricks on each other? You know, we, if you knew where your opponents were staying, you might you might mm-hmm. uh, call the hotel and ask them to do wake-up calls uh, at an obscene oh, yeah. hour. Yeah. That happened today? I wonder. I wonder. I will never forget that very late in the 1988 campaign, it was clear if you were on the road that we were going down in defeat. And I... Uh, was lead advance on a joint event, the Italian American Dinner in Washington D.C. It's a huge annual event at the at the uh, Washington Hilton, and it's a joint event. So Vice President Bush and Governor Dukakis were the speakers, and so you know you meet and you trade business cards, and I had the business card of the director of advance for the for the Bush campaign, and it was everything I could do not to go to another city and design a rally. You know, get a couple hundred business cards printed and pass them out to everybody, and rent the stage and the lighting and the sound and the get the banner made and 
I thought better of it. You know, I, I want to thank everyone for, for, for joining us today. There is something amazing about what what goes into being a staffer on these campaigns. You, you end up being able to do anything, and, and it's an incredible ability. It's also an incredible bond that you establish with, with people, mm-hmm. uh, both from your own campaign and who have served like you and others. Um, we have a lot more to talk about through this cycle, and uh, would love to have everyone back in the coming weeks and months. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi. Hi, Cayenne. Two Minutes with Tom. Welcome back again. Oh, we on air. Here we are again. Still Great to be back with you. Um, So this week, we are talking a little bit about Brexit, which has been mulling around in the news for a couple of years now. It is. Um, and it looks like it's uh, about to come to fruition. I think the magic date is March 29th. That is the exit date, by which time everybody is to agree as to what the agreement will be, the settlement will be between the European Union and Britain. And um, unfortunately, they're not quite there. No, and it's interesting because there was this referendum two plus years ago, almost three years ago, I think, uh, that was really supposed to finally settle the score of does Britain leave the European Union? Let's let the voters decide. It was 52 to 48 percent. And then it seemed all of a sudden there was upheaval. And even people that had voted for it were like, well, no, maybe not. And then the prime minister, it's, it's been a messy situation. Yeah, the Prime Minister May um, has has really gone out of her way. She was an opponent of Brexit, and then because she's the leader of the party, came back and, of, of course, had to champion the cause mm-hmm. to create the settlement between the EU and, and Britain as Not to what it was going situation. to look like. It, and, it, and it was pretty harsh, and she hasn't, she hasn't the collateral support of her own party uh, on, the, on the settlement which she created. And so there's still a lot of confusion as to what really is to go on. What are the trade ramifications between Britain and the rest of Europe? What is going to happen in Northern Ireland uh, with, you know, those open roads, which have been open now since, you know, the the early part of the 1990s uh, due to the Good Friday Agreement? Now those those roads may be closed um, and kind of hollowing back to the way it once was during the troubled times. So it's a tough time right now for Britain. It's a tough time for Northern Ireland. It's a tough time for the, for the uh, British Isles, all of whom did not agree with, with Britain or London and England when, when the vote took place. And they're seeing companies leave, I, I guess. It's oh, they're leaving a mass. Yeah, they're leaving a mass. And they're leaving We're London, be here anymore. which was the financial center for the EU. And now they're going to places like Germany and to Dublin as uh, resituated uh, capitals of, 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 of capital concentration. So we've got 29-ish days. Um, what, do you, what do you think the next 29 days look like? Well, the, the Liberal Party came out and said for the first time under Corbyn, their leader, that they'd be willing to have yet another, another vote. I don't think that goes so far. I think what's going to have to happen here is that the... the the political leadership of, of, of London and England are going to have to get behind the May plan and see if they can't work. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess. 
and what the ramifications are going to be for Great Britain with the Northern Ireland Irish question and their border control uh, issues are, are going to be, I, I think they're going to turn out to be for the best. I think they're going to be left as is, but uh, I hope that's not wishful thinking on my part. Well, I guess we'll find out. We will know in less than a month as to what's Pretty going to soon. happen. So we'll check back and talk about this in four or five weeks. And as as somebody who considers themselves to be, you know, a leader in the Irish-American community, if it doesn't work out for those borders between the north of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, you'll be hearing a lot more from me. Thanks, Tom. Okay, bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Special thanks to all of our OA team members who took time out to talk about their past work. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or check us out at our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.